Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, last week was Resurrection Sunday. So now what? What do we do in light of all of that? You know, it's funny because I almost went right back into our Acts sermon series. And it just, I was talking with Jenny this week and I'm, I'm looking at the text and all of it's important, right? All of it is meaningful, but it just seemed weird to switch channels that quickly to celebrate the, the, the pinnacle of our, our, our church year, the greatest event in the history of the world, uh, the thing which gives us the motivation to live the life that God has called us to live, and then to just switch channels and go back to business as usual. It just seemed wrong. It reminds me actually of, you know, we have Christmas season and, and Darlene and Shirley and others work hard to decorate the church so beautifully for Christmas time. And then they're here faithfully taking it down at the end of December. And we come into church and it's like, oh, it's all gone. Well, I didn't want you to come here this morning and it all be gone. The Easter's behind us. It's over next. No. So we're going we're gonna to reflect. Easter Sunday was last Sunday. Now what? How does what we celebrated last week inform how we live this week? And the week after, and the week after, and the week after that. So it led me to this, what I believe is an important question. How did the first Easter... The actual Sunday of Jesus' resurrection, how did that impact and inform the futures of his earliest disciples? And so we get to see that together in one of the texts of the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, which we read earlier, and I'm going to read again for you. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, starting in verse 19. And here is what it says. Hopefully you're still there, or you're going to be following along on the screen. Um, but John chapter 20, starting in verse 19, and here's what the text says. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the, Lord, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. 
Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded, these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What an amazing passage of scripture, and I encourage you, like I encourage the Sunday school this morning that if you did not read through the various gospel accounts of Jesus's Passion Week in the weeks, uh, represent, the Easter season weeks, I encourage you to do it now. I encourage you to go home and start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and their accounts because there's so much rich, wonderful history, blessings, teachings, miracles, things that Jesus did uh, that we want to make sure that we are reading, reflecting on, uh, and engaging with at this wonderful season. But again, I want to ask my question, how did the events of Jesus's death and resurrection inform the futures of his first disciples? And again, my hope is that by taking a look back through this passage to understand how Jesus's resurrection impacted them, that perhaps we'll have an understanding of how it ought to impact us as we intentionally move forward from Easter season into the life that God calls us to the rest of the year as well. So let's take a look. I want to look at four things specifically, four ways in which Jesus' resurrection impacted his earliest disciples, at least as what we see in this text. And the first one is this, that they experienced transformation. The disciples experienced a deep transformation. In fact, we see right at the beginning in verse 19 where they were at before Jesus appeared to them risen from the dead. Here's what verse 19 says. Uh, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. This is what I want to highlight here. What was their state as Jesus came and appeared before them? They were in hiding. They literally were hiding together with the doors locked because they thought that as Jesus' closest followers, they were going to meet the same sticky end. They thought at any moment, the religious leaders are going to show up with the temple guards at their door, bust in, arrest them, and bring them before the Sanhedrin, or even worse, turn them over to the Romans just as Jesus was, and they were going to face a similar end. This is what they feared. And so they were in hiding. And so what do we know about the disciples after this encounter? After this this encounter with Jesus, the Lord, risen from the dead. They were no longer a group of scared individuals hiding from the religious leaders, worried about their own lives. In fact, they did a complete 180. They became bold, impassioned ambassadors of the good news of the gospel. 
They went into some interesting and dangerous situations proclaiming the truth. They faced intense threats, even from those Jewish religious leaders that they were hiding from here. And eventually, most of them faced martyrdom. They willingly went to the end of their lives, dying for the truth of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus did in fact die on the cross for sins and was raised again from the dead. This scared group of hiding Jewish people became a powerful force that did not care what happened to them in the proclamation of the gospel. They experienced transformation. Here's something else that came about as a result of the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, that these first disciples experienced joy, a deep-seated joy that goes way beyond the term happy that we like to throw around. We're talking about something deep within them. And the interesting part is that prior to this experience of joy that they received at the Lord's resurrection, they were experiencing deep sadness. We see this in John chapter 20, verse 20. He said, after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And so even though Jesus tried to prepare them for his death and resurrection, I don't know if you remember this or not, but during his three years with them, especially as he got closer and closer to Jerusalem, Jesus attempted on multiple occasions to prepare them for what was going to happen. And so he told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the religious leaders, turned over to the Gentiles and killed, and then raised raised from the dead. And yet even so, they did not understand what he was talking about or didn't believe what he was saying. And so when Jesus was arrested, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane that they all fled. They all went and hid. They ran for their own lives. And as Jesus went through the events of his trial before Pilate at his crucifixion, we see that most of them were, were gone and hiding. And then after Jesus' death, here they are in hiding in the upper room, scared to death for their own souls and saddened deeply about the loss of their master. One of the places in the Gospels where we see this best, we see the deep disappointment, the deep sadness that existed among Jesus' followers in light of his death is in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. I'm going to set this up for you. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen from the dead. The ladies have gone to the tomb and they found it empty and they encountered the risen Jesus after encountering an angel that explained what was going to happen. And they came and started telling the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. And yet his followers just had a hard time wrapping their minds around that as a, even a possibility. They are still experiencing the deep sadness of thinking that their Lord, their master, the one they thought was the Messiah, was dead, which was not according to the plan, according, that, in terms of what they thought. Here's what it says, Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. 
He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. I, I want you to catch this. Please don't miss that. Jesus knows what they're talking about. Jesus knows they can't recognize him yet for who he is. And he asks the rhetorical question, what is it you guys are talking about as you're walking along here? And they freeze, dead in their tracks. Because they feel it in that moment, the deep loss all over again. And their faces are downcast with sorrow over the loss of their Lord. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. We see deep sadness, deep sorrow. What they believe was their, their, their hope, their deep, true hope that God was finally fulfilling all of his promises to Israel. That they, the day had come and they were blessed to be alive to see it. And he wasn't who they thought he was going to be. He didn't oust the Romans. He didn't set up his kingdom on the earth. He didn't usher in a reign of peace. He didn't restore Jewish autonomy. The enemies killed him. Their own leaders rejected him. We had thought he was this person. And I guess we were wrong. And here they are, not only in sorrow for the loss of their Lord, but their loss that the hope that they thought had been fulfilled they thought they had been completely mistaken about. When Jesus died, all of his followers were overcome with sadness. Think about it, he was their friend, he was their teacher, he was their master, and now he was dead. They believed him to be the hope of Israel, but they had thought that that meant ruling in Jerusalem, not dying on a cross. And at this point, they didn't know what to believe. And they were overcome with sadness over all of these things that had just taken place. But when Jesus appeared to them, alive again, we read this in John 20, that the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They were filled with joy from sadness. How did the events of Jesus' death and resurrection inform the futures of his earliest disciples? They experienced transformation. They experienced joy. And further, they were entrusted now with new purpose. They weren't just, you know, hey, good, just let you know you can be happy I'm alive. They were commissioned. They were given a new purpose, a new direction for the rest of their lives in light of what had just taken place and in light of the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but every one of the four Gospels and the book of Acts includes a version of what we call the Great Commission. And here is the one that we see in the Gospel of John in our text from this morning. John chapter 20, verses 21 through 23. It says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, 
I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So what's taking place here? What's this new purpose that they've been entrusted with? Jesus is commissioning his followers to share the good news. He is commissioning them to serve as God's ambassadors of the good news, which literally had just taken place in their time, that they themselves are eyewitnesses to. They are the first ones entrusted with sharing this great news, that God's solution to sin has finally come, that the people can now be reconciled to God through Jesus's death and resurrection. I told you that all of the Gospels and the book of Acts all have an account of the Great Commission. And there are many similarities between John's version that we've just read and what we see in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is probably the the first thing we think about when we think about the Great Commission. Right? Uh, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So we see great similarities. But we also see similarities in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see similarities between what we see recounted in John and these other passages. For instance, in Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples to go. Go and make disciples. And here in John's gospel, it says, I am sending you, which is another way of saying what? Go, get out of here. I have, I'm sending you, go and do this. It acts Jesus begins his commission by informing the disciples that they are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on on you. And it's only because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that they have the ability to go and be his witnesses, to go and make disciples, to begin the mission here and take it to the ends of the earth. It's only by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And what do we see in John? In John, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit foreshadowing what will soon come when the Holy Spirit descends on God, Jesus' followers, empowering them for the mission that he's called them to. And here, 2,000 years later, because they and subsequent generations took seriously this new purpose, this great commission, we are here today And we have also been entrusted with this new purpose. Think about it. They were entrusted with a new purpose, and they lived it out. And because of that, the gospel has gone forth for the last 2,000 years. We are recipients, as well as those who have been entrusted with the mantle of also being Christ's ambassadors. (coughs) Excuse me. I have to take a getting over being sick break for just a moment. And dribble on my shirt as well. That is, that is for your enjoyment. <laughs> so again, how did Jesus's death and his resurrection inform the futures of his first disciples? They experienced transformation. They experienced joy. They were entrusted with a new purpose. And finally, they understood 
They've understood in no uncertain terms the lordship of Jesus. In fact, before his death and resurrection, they understood a lot about Jesus. They had come to understand a lot. They understood that he was the Messiah. They understood that he was the Son of God. They understood that he was a prophet, that he was a rabbi. They understood that he was their master. And we see these affirmations in various places throughout the Gospels and throughout Jesus' time with them on the earth. But it's after his resurrection we see Thomas's bold proclamation. And we see this in verses 28 to, uh, 26 to 28. It says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What did Thomas say? Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas got it. I think they all got it. The gospel message, the good news that we received, that we believed, right, that we proclaimed to others, it has three essential elements, three important things, three things that regardless of what denomination you belong to, what church you attend, these are the three things that unite all Christians everywhere. These are non-negotiables, okay? And they are the atoning death of Jesus, his bodily resurrection, and his lordship, his deity, his divinity. These are the three essential elements, the non-negotiables of the Christian life that all Christians believe. These are the essential elements of the gospel. And we see the clarification, that moment when it clicks for Thomas. You know, regardless of what primitive understanding that these disciples may have had before the resurrection of Jesus, after the resurrection, they certainly understood who Jesus was. He was God in the flesh. And so how did these events of Jesus' death and resurrection inform the futures of his disciples? They experienced transformation. They experienced joy. They were entrusted with a new purpose, and they understood the lordship of Jesus. So now let me ask this question. What about us? Easter was last Sunday. What about this week? What about next week? How do these things inform our futures, our lives, as we live them in Christ and for him? We have lived as Christ followers. We've just celebrated Resurrection Sunday. So how do these truths inform our lives? Let's start with this. We have, we do, and we will experience transformation in much the same way that they experience transformation on this and at subsequent points we too if we are christ followers we have been transformed as we walk with jesus we continue to be transformed and we will be transformed so let's start with this we have experienced transformation we have been transformed and if you've committed your life to christ that a significant transformation has already taken place. We've been moved from death to life, right? The Bible uses the term born again or regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We were dead. We were cut off from God. We were spiritually dead, destined for an eternal death. 
And all of that changed when we put our faith in Jesus and he sent us the Holy Spirit who regenerates our lives. And all of a sudden we move from death to life. We've been adopted as a son or daughter of God. That part blows me away every single time. That should humble you immediately if you take it as it says. If you believe it as truth, there's not many more humbling things than that. That God didn't just send you, uh, you know, throw you a life uh, raft or, you know, throw you a, you know, something to, to just keep you afloat. He didn't just forgive you. But he has adopted you into his family. He looks on you as a daughter or a son. He loves you in that way. He's established that relationship between you and him on account of Jesus' death and resurrection. That is a tremendous transformation that has taken place. He has empowered you in various ways for ministry within his church and admission to those outside. You know, there are things that you know you're good at, right? Maybe you've always been good at them. There are things that somehow God has given you the ability to do that you don't even remember developing that skill. You weren't great at it as a kid, but somehow you found a way in which it works. And these are ways, just some of the ways in which God has uniquely formed you for the works that he's called you to do, both within the body of Christ and in mission in the world for him. Transformation. You have a relationship with God where he brings you comfort, where he hears your prayers, where he cares for you, both in those moments when you can recognize him at work and those times behind the scenes when you have absolutely no idea. You have a relationship with God that was not there before you put your trust in him. And you have hope for the future. You know, this world is pretty crummy much of the time. It reminds us that the scriptures are true. We live in a fallen world among fallen people. It's broken. But God promises that he will fix it. And we have that hope in him that is true for us. And that hope informs the lives we live. If we take God at his word, it informs our lives. It gives us the ability to be joyful when everybody else would think we should be sad. It gives us the opportunity to endure hardships, when, but not to be stopped or slowed down because our eye is on the prize. We know the future. We have hope, right? We have experienced transformation. And we do continue to experience transformation because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is continually at work in our sanctification setting us apart from sin, apart from our own selves, apart from worldliness, and setting us apart unto him. He is forming us more and more into the character of his son, Jesus Christ. The more we surrender our lives to him, the more he does in our hearts and minds, moving us on this journey of sanctification. He enables us to continue to grow in our discipleship, our understanding of the scriptures, our ability to live them out, our ability to serve him. These things are all always growing, always transforming the longer we walk with him. We're able to grow in our relationship with God. And I remember when I met Jenny, I, I liked Jenny. We clicked right at the very beginning of our friendship. Uh, I, I enjoyed talking to her, but I didn't know a whole lot about her at the time. The more I talked to her, the more we developed a relationship, the more I knew about her. The more I knew about her, the more I liked her, the more I trusted her. 
And then we, when we took our relationship to the next level and actually started dating, guess what? A whole bunch of other emotions and experiences engaged together, and we walked down this journey of relationship. Think of anybody who you're in a relationship with, a friend, your spouse, a coworker, a neighbor. I sure hope that the longer that you've attended, you've attended to that relationship, the deeper it's grown. And the longer we walk with the Lord, which we only have the ability to do because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the, lo- the more we lean in in that relationship with the Lord, the longer we walk it, the stronger it grows. There are so many ways in which we are continually being transformed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And friends, we will experience transformation. So we have, and we are, and we also will. In fact, Philippians 1, 3 through 6, Paul says this in writing to the church of Philippi. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so friends, when we think about those processes, those ways in which God is still transforming us, God isn't done. I mean, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, these things that he has begun, he will continue. And those things he continues, he will complete. And so God will transform us. We experience transformation because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of what we celebrate at Easter. Just like the disciples, we also experience joy. Friends, if we are not experiencing joy in the Lord, then we have a problem and we need to attend to it right away. Because God makes provision for us to be overjoyed, for our sadness to turn to joy. I want to just reflect for a moment on the disciples again. Their lives did not become happy after Jesus' resurrection. Their lives did not become wonderful and pleasant and peaceful after Jesus' resurrection. They faced intense persecution. They were beaten. They were exiled. They were jailed. They were persecuted. And many of them eventually died. But they had joy. Joy, unfathomable. Joy beyond what anybody who's looking at them from the outside looking in could possibly understand. Why are you joyful when you face the things you face? Because joy isn't happiness. Joy is much deeper than that. And friends, if we're not experiencing that joy, both in good times and in bad times, then we've got to see what's going on. Because it means we're not reflecting on and letting our lives be guided by the truth of the gospel. The good news, which is so much grander than any temporal affliction we might face. It means we're not being intentional about fostering our life with Jesus because it's only in being connected to the vine, only in being anchored to him, that we experience that deep joy that God intends for each of us as long as we walk with him. Or perhaps it means that we're just not taking him at his word. His promises, the things we look forward to, far outweigh those realities, even the most difficult ones we face now. But if we don't take him at his word, 
It doesn't keep things in perspective. And we have a habit of putting blinders on and seeing nothing but the problems that face us when God intends for us to look beyond them to the truth that awaits for us. Friends, we need to get ourselves in order if we're not experiencing the joy that God has for us in Christ. When we recognize the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus and all the things that we have to look forward to when Jesus returns and the depth of the relationship we're called to have with him even now, it brings deep and unending joy. Sometimes even when we're not happy. <laughs> and finally, we're entrusted with new purpose. The first disciples all died by the end of the first century AD. I want to remind you of that. That's, that's like a lot of years ago, right? By the end of the first century, all the original disciples had pretty much died. And we live about 2,000 years later, right? That's a big gap between when they died and when we live and have heard and responded to the gospel. So here's the question. If the first disciples who saw Jesus risen from the dead who were the first to proclaim the gospel, died 2,000 years ago. How did we ever hear and respond to the gospel? Who told you? Who told the person who told you? How did we hear and respond to the gospel? Because the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel has been passed on to every single generation of believers from the first through us now and will continue until Jesus comes back. We now have been entrusted with this purpose as well, to be ambassadors of the good news that Jesus has died for sins. He has risen again from the dead. And in light of the resurrection of Jesus, we ought to go and proclaim the truth to every single person who will listen. Why? Because all those things that God has done for us in Christ, the transformation the joy, the purpose, the, the enjoying the lordship of Jesus Christ and all the promises and the blessings that come along with that is open to everybody else who is somewhere else doing something else this morning, who's living in a world of pain with absolutely no hope, who if death faced them tomorrow would have no idea where they're going, or maybe they've told themselves a story of a happy place they might go to, but they have no basis for reality. It's a coping mechanism because they're scared to death about what happens beyond this life. And you and I have the good news that there's hope and we could share it and change their life now and their eternity forever by introducing them to our Lord and Savior. This is why. So that if the Lord does tarry 2,000 years more, and I hope he doesn't, that somebody could stand in a pulpit like this and ask, Doug Lane Alliance Church was 2,000 years ago, and you responded to the gospel today. How did you hear and respond to it? Because every subsequent generation from us, the mantle of being an ambassador of Christ has gone forward. And so let us make the most of our time in history to be a part of that. And finally, the death and resurrection of Jesus impacts us because Jesus is Lord. And that informs every other thing in our lives. God tells the truth 
And so when Jesus makes promises about what his death and resurrection accomplished for us, when Jesus makes promises about his being present with us as we go, when Jesus makes promises of the future that we have, the resurrection from the dead, the new heaven and the new earth, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears, being with God face to face for all of eternity, Jesus is Lord and his word is true and we can trust it.